Have you ever wondered who is doing the research that will impact your future? The Research Podcast lets you meet those people and learn how the University of Kentucky is exploring and strengthening our understanding of the world through research and discovery. Here's Alicia Gregory, Director of Research Communications. Today I'm talking with Doug Andrus, Chair of the Molecular and Cellular Biochemistry Department in the UK College of Medicine. Fifteen years ago, Doug's team produced data that showed mutations in an on-off switch called RIT1 are a novel driver for human lung cancer. His data was just confirmed with gene sequencing, and he has a new two-year grant from the Kentucky Lung Cancer Research Fund. So we study a family of, of proteins called small G proteins, and you can think of them as on-off switches. And so they control everything from how cells differentiate to how they grow. And in the disease like cancer, what happens many times is that these switches get broken, and they get broken on the on position. And so they, the cells that have mutations constantly grow even though they don't have the right uh, signals coming from the environment. And actually the first project I worked on um, as a new assistant professor was to, to define and first identify this RIT1 protein. And with my graduate students, we were able to show that RIT1 had the ability to control cell growth. And we showed that when the switch was broken, it actually could cause cancer-like growth properties. And so I was very excited and set out to try to get funding for the work. And it failed. And the reason it failed was because um, the reviewers of that grant came back with a very rational question. They said, we know that cancer is a genetic disease, and we, we really like the data you've developed, but you have to show us that mutations actually occur in human cancer within this gene. And at the time, that was an incredibly difficult thing to do. We've never stopped working on RIT1, but we simply couldn't get funding to continue the work looking at its role in, in cancer. I never really give up on anything. That's one of my talents or craziness, if, depending on how you view me. But we, we didn't give up, and it just so happened that a little over a year ago, I got a call out of the blue um, from a group that's at the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard. And um, Dr. Myerson there has a, has a very large program in which he's doing uh, genome sequencing of a variety of different cancers. And so he informed me that one of his postdocs and he had found mutations within RIT1 in a project that they'd been doing for many years looking at lung adenocarcinoma. And so uh, we then collaborated to really repeat many of the studies that I had done with my, with my students back in the late 90s um, to demonstrate that these new mutations that they'd found from human cancers had the same properties that we had been able to sort of generate within the laboratory. And so that provided evidence, exciting evidence, that indeed RIT was mutated and that it's a driver. So initial mutations in this switch that breaks it are one of the first mutations that happens in a cell on its way from being a normal cell within the lung to a, a lung uh, cancer. And so the grant that we've got is to push that work forward and, and we hope will lead to greater understanding of that mutation and how those, those tumors may differ from tumors that have been seen before. So you've known about RIT1 for a long time. We've never stopped looking at the role of this protein, 
but we've largely studied in the context of the neuron and how the same signaling pathway affects uh, neuronal growth and differentiation. It's one of the fascinating things about um, signal transduction. The cells in your body have only a finite number of pathways for transmitting information. And so they are really creative in reusing the tools that they have to shuttle new information in. So the proteins that we find, these switches in one cell may control one aspect of biology and a different cell in the same body, but just a different cell type, it may have a different role to play. And that's really one of the, the things that's fascinating about it. What have been some of the most fulfilling moments for you related to your discoveries? Each time that we really gain fundamental insight into a problem, that is an exhilaration. Sometimes those, those things happen in six months of work or a year of work, or I think this is a great example. It's taken 15 years between when we made an initial discovery and when it was actually found that our initial hypothesis was correct and that the ideas that we'd had you know, 15 years ago actually came to fruition. So that was really quite special. The other thing that's really interesting about the RIT1 protein is it not only is found to be mutated in lung cancers, but also in a human developmental disease called Noonan syndrome. You might not know, but Noonan syndrome is named for a cardiologist, Jacqueline Noonan, who actually is a faculty member at the University of Kentucky. So I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Noonan and talking about RIT1 mutations with her just in passing at a gathering and that was really pretty special. The scientific world is so small that you could actually meet someone who'd started a field and that you'd contribute to. That was pretty neat and pretty special. What are you most excited about in terms of the impact of your research in the near future? The data that we have suggests that RIT1 mutations are most closely associated with uh, cigarette smoking. So tobacco use as I think everyone knows, is really the primary driver of the mutations that underlie lung cancer. If people would stop smoking, then lung cancer as a, as a worldwide health crisis would um, largely be, be ended. So it's the number one killer um, worldwide from, from cancer. I think that RIT1 mutations are likely to be more prevalent, unfortunately, in patients in the state of Kentucky than in many other parts of the country because of the very high smoking rates that, that are still found within the state. So my hope is first that by identifying these mutations with my collaborators at the Broad Institute that we'll be able to develop diagnostic tests so that patients that come in with lung adenocarcinoma may be diagnosed as having a RIT1 dependent subtype and with that understanding perhaps clinicians can develop better treatment strategies for those people in the near term. And interestingly, because of the connection to Noonan syndrome, the same thing may be true for patients with Noonan syndrome. Longer term, I hope that the research that we will do that's funded by the Kentucky Lung Cancer Research Grant that I just got will help to give us additional insight into what makes RIT-dependent lung cancer different than some of the other uh, driver mutations that develop the similar types of disease, but they are clearly different because their genetic underpinnings are different. And, and if that work would go forward, I would hope a little longer term that we would be able to help 
in developing new, new therapies for, for those patients. So this particular protein would be a large step forward in terms of the personalized medicine that everybody is talking about. That's right. In fact, the best therapies now involve insight into how particular classes of lung cancer develop, uh, particularly a, a subclass that involves a receptor. And there have been drugs that have been developed to specifically interfere with the actions of that receptor, and those, those have proven to be highly, highly effective in treating patients. But unfortunately, that's still just a fraction of all the patients that develop these tumors. And so that's right. The idea would be first that the insight we've gained would provide the idea that you could personalize the type of tumor down to the driver that leads to its generation. And then secondly, the hope is by having that information, you'd be better able to develop therapies that would target that particular um, type of subtype of, of lung cancer. So in looking through the list of your currently funded projects, they're touching on a lot of different areas. We are from brain injury to heart failure to lung cancer. Uh -huh. So the common denominators in all this. So I'm a biochemist and so my philosophy is a reductionist. So the way that I approach science is to try to reduce it to a single molecule, understand that molecule really well, and then through that understanding hopefully then expand back out to look at disease processes or, or bigger questions. And so Although I have funding from many sources, in the end, what I'm interested in is how cells communicate and how when that communication breaks down, it affects the whole organism, whether that's an organ like the heart or, or generating tumors. They all come down to that same fundamental question. And then once we understand that, it turns out that in many cases, the defects that we see may be involved in disease processes in a multitude of different um, cell types. So we study a couple of these different switches and that also leads to that diversity but largely in the end we're interested, the thing that drives me is the, is the same, how to, how to understand fundamentally how these, these on-off switches operate and then to understand um, when they're broken, how that affects um, human health. So how did you first get interested in this cell signaling? So. So I think I've always, always been fascinated by biology. So as a young child, I was someone who would go out and, and do things like catch snakes and then bring them home and hide them in my bedroom against my mom's wishes. And I never really lost that. Through school, it was always something that was really interesting to me. When I got to college, I had a family member who, who got cancer. That experience really probably changed the course of my life. And so I decided that that was a disease and a process that I wanted to better understand. And really, fundamentally, much of disease involves miscommunication. And so that's signal transduction. And I always then knew I'd either be a physician or a scientist. I really love the freedom that a laboratory provides, and so I can follow sort of my bliss. And so far I've been able to, to convince uh, people to help support my research. And so I've been fortunate to be able to understand and touch on a lot of different disease processes. What is the most challenging aspect of the work that you do? I think the most challenging part of doing modern 
biomedical research is simply the pace at which new information is being gained. So the differences between when I started graduate school to now are truly mind-boggling. They're things that are done now in my lab that I never thought would be possible, let alone something that I would be involved in, in doing. There's that challenge of, of internalizing all that new information and then deciding how your work fits into this dynamic, ever-changing environment and trying to, to work to contribute in a significant way to, to that new knowledge. And so that's really a challenge, but it's also part of the thing that really drives you and it's a lot of fun. What is your favorite part of being a researcher? It's the thrill of exploration. There's excitement in the chase. There's lots of hard work that's involved and that's almost always done as part of a team. So there's an added sweetness when you actually make a discovery and you can share that um, with people that in many cases you've been toiling you know, at, at the bench for many, many hours for many, many years. And, and that, that you know, makes it even more special. What inspires you about the University of Kentucky? I think it's the people. So the university is really unique in that we have quite an accomplished group of researchers. And so I think that the, the university researchers in general punch way above our weight. And the reason for that is because of the collaborative nature of the group. So I've never been turned away. I've shown up at people's door asking for help in understanding a process or help in developing an assay. And people have been unfailingly kind and generous with their time and reagents and ideas. And so that really has it's been one of the things that has kept me um, here for so long. The people are really quite special. And, and this kind of environment is not one that I've encountered in any of the other places that I've performed research. What would you tell someone who's thinking about joining the research enterprise at UK? It's one of the few universities that has an academic medical center located on the campus. So you have everything from the ag school to a medical school um, to a large undergraduate campus all within walking distance. So almost independent of what, you know, what idea strikes you, what information you want, whether you want to name a gene and you need a, a, a Latin scholar, or you, uh, you know, I have colleagues who, who study processes that actually end up being important in plants, and so they have collaborators uh, working on plants, and you wouldn't think that would be possible if you were working in a, in a college of medicine, but on UK that's really true, and, and again, because those people um, are so uh, kind with their time and, and helpful, it's possible to have collaborations that span the, the breadth of the, of the faculty that are here, and that makes the place pretty special. Thank you for listening to The Research Podcast. To subscribe to our podcasts on SoundCloud or iTunes, search University of Kentucky Research Media and visit our site, reveal.uky.edu.